Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. I'm Tara McBride, and joining me for this month in women's history is my colleague and friends, Jennifer Sicozzi. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Tara McBride. We have, thank you, full name, (laughs) (laughs) so formal. Uh, We have an incredible, iconic feminist woman, um, probably one of the first ever in recorded history, Joan of Arc, also known as Jeanne d'Arc, and the Maid of Orléans, and in French, La Pousselle d'Orléans. <laughs> that's, that's French. We are throwing out all the apologies for our French already because it's going to be rough. Absolutely. Tara definitely made it sound a lot nicer than I will, and <laughs> you're about to really be in for a nice treat. So buckle up <laughs> and get ready for some really terrible pronunciations. We're going to do our best, though. We will. We will. There will be passion and respect. All the passion. We love the French. <laughs> we do. <laughs> So I thought it would be really fun to start off by talking about how we both discovered our first experience with Joan of Arc. Yeah. Mine personally was in um, the year 2002. We're going to set the scene. We're going to have a young Jennifer still in a Catholic school. We're in sixth. Oh, no, we are younger than that. We are in maybe... Fourth grade. Oh, yeah, we don't like that. And we're (laughs) watching a show called Clone High on MTV. This show was about the greatest minds of the world who have been cloned and now are attending high school together. One of those characters, my friends, Joan of Arc. Wow. And she was this wonderful, awesome, cool character who was... um, she had this awesome chopped red bob. She had this awesome shirt, which I happen to be wearing a very similar shirt to. A little black cutoff, but except mine is work appropriate. Yeah. So no belly buttons. No belly buttons. Oh, no, no. <laughs> and um, she's just this BA cool kind of chick. And she um, stood up for what was right. And she was constantly protesting. And little did I know the historical background of, of content that she had. Mm-hmm. What about you? What was what was your first experience? Because mine was a the first I remember. Well, yeah. well, I mean, I think that it's all pretty similar for kids, right? So my first experience that I can remember really sticking out with Joan of Arc was a 1989 epic hit, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Thank you very much. And yes, I've seen two, and I will watch three. There is a third one coming out. I'm very excited. Anyway, but it was similar, right? So, Bill, if you don't know the premise of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they are time traveling in a phone booth. Yeah, phone booths. Jen, that's something that you um, went into to make phone calls that had a a phone inside. My goodness. Yes. What a device. (laughs) And it didn't move. Except in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they went all around uh, the world and all through time. And they found Joan of Arc and plucked her out of um, her her era and brought the brought her to 1989, where she got to run around with them and then be part of their essentially their book report at the end of the the whole movie. It was adorable, and they did they did portray her as a deeply religious, kind, um, tough person. So they kind of held true to that, but obviously it was a comedic interpretation of uh, of Joan of Arc. So that was the first time that I remember being exposed really in any any way to Joan of Arc. But she's way more complicated 
than either of those interpretations. Absolutely, and also not um, featuring Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, history does not recall him. Although, this. I've heard that he's a vampire, so who knows? He might have been alive at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Keanu. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that we should get into how Joan, she was born a peasant and really was only able to reach her teenage years before she became a military leader, a martyr, and finally died at the stake and died convinced that she was a failure, but is remembered as the patron saint of France. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what were, what were we both doing at our teenage years? She died at age 19. What, what were you doing at 19? Yeah, I was uh, a student at Penn State University, and I was working and going to school full-time and just being a general college idiot. <laughs> and I, there was no way that I was as uh, deeply rooted and focused as somebody like Joan of Arc. It's It's strange to think about where I was mentally and where what we know of her where she was mentally completely different kind of person from me what about you what were you up to at 19 I I was doing some stupid college things myself I was still living in my parents house living on Long Island in New York and doing um, some theater I was doing some children's theater through my college at the time Nassau Community College <laughs> and um, we're doing I'm pretty sure it's the Emperor's New Clothes mm. was the name of the play and it was a battle in itself so very fun fun time but yeah Definitely completely different, different from Joan. Completely, yes. <laughs> I mean, I voted, so at least I was politically inclined, but that's about as deep as I got. I didn't. I wasn't even into voting. I was one of those people, and I apologize. I voted since and corrected that since. That's good. So don't worry. <laughs> anyway, let's get into a lot about this. The whole reason we're talking about Joan in May is due to her being canonized as a Roman Catholic saint by Pope Benedict the Fifteenth on May 16th in 1920 as the patron saint of France, which is celebrated as her feast day on May 30th each year. So coming up, it is. And I I think it's so fascinating that I just really never learned about Joan of, or at least remember learning about Joan of Arc at Catholic school when I went. That's where I I went to Maria Regina. It was the school I went to from kindergarten through eighth grade. And I have a feeling that there was some conflict during the time of year, maybe, during her feast day, because it's communion season. Oh, yeah. It's a real thing. Hairdressers know all about it, <laughs> communion season. But I have a feeling that that was why maybe I didn't learn so much about her or recall, because we were so focused on uh, the Virgin Mary and, mm-hmm. and all of the, the communion process. So that's yeah. a little bit of interest Yeah, there. That, that she's not included as part mm-hmm. of that. Interesting. Yeah. So, Jen, why don't you give us some dig into Joan and where she came from and why we're talking about her? Well, got to start at the very root, letting you all know that this took place during the Hundreds Years War, which was not actually 100 years. It lasted 116 years between England and France. It was a whole series of wars over a dispute who would be the heir to the French throne. So a bunch of Henrys and Charleses. Fighting for the throne, essentially. If you hear Henry, think England. If you hear Charles, think France. And we're all fighting for the French throne. Short and sweet. So there's some French here, Tara. I think that you (laughs) might as well take it away with her early life. Yeah, I've got it. I've got you. Thank you. 
so Joan was born in 1412 in Domremy, France, uh, which is located in northeast France. I won't do all of France. Um, <laughs> that just sounds so pretentious. Uh, so she was the daughter of poor tenant farmers Jacques d'Arc and his wife Isabelle, also known as Romé. Joan learned domestic skills from her mother and her father, and they taught her how to take care of the farm and use a sword. Um, and I have to imagine that part of that was because she they, they lived in a village that was actually surrounded by um, English sympathizers, so they were constantly being attacked. Mm -hmm. um, so it just wasn't safe for her to go too far from home. So they knew that they needed to make sure that she could take care of herself if anything were ever to happen. Um, so she took care of the animals. Um, she became quite a skilled seamstress. She was raised Catholic, as we've already mentioned, and she was deeply religious. And she was taught how to, to pray and respect religion. Um, something I didn't know about at the time, um, her mother, Isabel, was from um, an era where religious public devo devotion, excuse me, afforded women a certain level of respect. So the more devoted you were, the more respected you were in the community. Yes, it's very impressive to see that um, that has adjusted so much within the, I guess adjusted is, is an insane word to use here, mm -hmm. but how it's changed through the years and uh, through our current climate, how public devotion is looked at now. Yeah, we look at it through a different lens. It's just, there's more diversity and there's just a different, a different way of viewing those things. Um, it's just, it's so different. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's interesting to see um, that that kind of deep uh, religious devotion was celebrated and revered and, uh, and that she got to the point, Joan specifically got to the point where she was because of that deep devotion. Absolutely. And it really has shown that um, within a certain given time and place, they do respect that sort of public devotion. Um, society is who I meant by they. And I hope that it does get to a point where public devotion does become more respected once again and is more uh there's more, there's more of a safe feeling mm -hmm. surrounding that public devotion again, like there used to be a bit. I, I feel like there's always been that constant fear because of the stakes, because you're doing something in public, you're giving over something so personal in public. So it's, there's a lot, it's a very heavy subject. It is very heavy. And, and if we had more time, oh, and we didn't have Joan, who is, you know, hefty and rich with content, then I'm sure we could get into a very long conversation about yeah. religion and the views of religion in, in modern society. But because we have Joan, of course, because we have Joan, we must, we, we must forge on. <laughs> so can you take us into the next phase? I would love to, because I'm going to bring some history back into this. In 1415, with King Henry V of England, he invaded northern France. And when the England defeated the French forces, it gained the support of the Burgundies in France, which were that outer surrounding area that were um, around Joan. Yes, yeah, so yeah. right around Joan's area, plaguing her town. And uh, when this group happened to be stationed, this is where all of that battle that and that skill that she had been trained came in but there was in 1420 a treaty of troy which was created to grant the french throne to henry in reign for the um king charles the sixth to basically 
get out of there and the French will rightfully take their seat back. This would happen after Charles's death. But however, in 1422, both Henry and Charles died within a couple months of each other. That left Henry's infant son king of both realms, which the French supporters started to back Charles's son as the future Charles VII and sensed that opportunity to return the, the crown to the French monarch. But it was at this time, in uh, just a little bit later in 1425, that Joan had her first vision at the age of 13. It was there in her father's garden where she saw visions of three figures who she identified as St. Michael, St. Catherine of Alexandria, and St. Catherine of Anataki. St. Margaret. St. Margaret. St. <laughs> Margaret. Reading is good. But the three of them pushed her to live a pious life. Eventually, over the years, they began to give her more direct orders, one of which was for her to support Charles VII and take France back from English domination during the later years of the Hundred Years' War and bring the Dauphin to Rams for his coronation and become the savior of France. So <laughs> we went from 13-year-old Joan being greeted by St. Margaret, St. Catherine, and St. Michael, mm -hmm being told to just live a very simple, respectful, religious, quiet life, remain a virgin, easy directions, lay low, mm -hmm. to starting to get some uh, more intense directions, yeah. like completely uh, overthrowing the throne and, and bringing the Dauphin to France. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a hard pivot. <laughs> a very hard pivot. <laughs> and 13, my goodness, I mean, I, I can't help but... I feel like these things are kind of intangible, right? You think of Joan of Arc, and it sounds like a story, and to us it is a story, but this is a real person, a flesh yes. and blood person who was a brand new teenager, 13, and seeing visions clearly in her family's garden and being told to do things, and so, so religious, so deeply entrenched in it. It's not like she had distractions with television or you know, listening to, to her iPod or anything, yes. iPod. Wow. How about your iPhone? I know. <laughs> what is it, like 2003? Sorry. <laughs> they used to be two. Now they're one that's fair. That's two different devices. It makes sense. Let's get in the telephone booth. I, I, yeah, bring all of our devices in there. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I just feel like it would be really uh, overwhelming to be 13 and to be greeted by angels, essentially, yes. and saints, to, and having them tell you clearly and directly what to do. And yes. she listened. And without without thinking about it, mm -hmm. she just completely gave over that without question. And the thing is, it, of this time and of this era, mental illness wasn't a very big conversation. So was it divine vision or a rumor? Was, was it was it schizophrenia, right? The hearing of voices. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's just so much to think about in that, but it's better to think, and I like for the sake of the story and of her history, mm -hmm. that she was greeted by angels. I full-heartedly, I'm with her. Yeah. I believe that she saw those angels. I don't think that it's anything related to mental illness at all, but it's a interesting factor in her story. Yeah, that some people probably have yeah. Sure, there are resources out there that talk about, uh, you know, people in history that have visions and 
and what that might mean in terms of, you know, the modern, again, the modern lens looking back and, and figuring out what that actually was. Um, but I agree with you. I like the idea of there being something divine mm -hmm. involved in all of this. Um, and, you know, just her story and how, how uh, focused and um, kind she seemed to be in all these stories. If there's something to that. I, I don't know. It just seems like yeah, I, I like I like the story. It doesn't as well. It, yeah, it doesn't feel so much like rumor or lore. It feels feels genuine. Yeah. So Joan, it, these yeah. these arcs like they they take time, right? They do. It's sort of like Game of Thrones where we time travel constantly. <laughs> Nobody realizes that that you know a fort of not Fortnite that's a game. Is that is it a Fortnite? It is like 14 days. Yes, that um, is. It's, it's a game and amount of time. Oh, fantastic. So but this time, it, it, it's three years now that, that passes, right? So we, we go from Joan having visions in her father's garden to May of 1428 when she is 16. Mm -hmm. So she asks a relative. So I imagine over this time, she's been receiving visions throughout these three years. Yeah. It just doesn't drop. It, it happens probably pretty frequently. Um, she asks a relative to take her to a nearby town the town of Wokulu, where she petitioned the garrison commander uh, for an armed escort to bring her to the French royal court in Chignon. And he said no. Um, her visions persist, as, as I mentioned, and um, uh, her public devotion was known to many, many and spreading quicker every single day. The rumors grew that Joan was the prophesized virgin who would lead the French to, to victory. In January 1429, the garrison commander eventually listened to her, and she was given a second meeting. So, why was she given that chance? What was she, uh, what was she able to do? How were they able to kind of make that transition from absolutely not, you're not going anywhere near anybody, to we're going to listen to you? Like, what do you think that was? I mean, I really feel at first it could have been pure annoyance, the fact that. He just believed. Maybe he just believed. He woke up that day and he felt that it was the right thing to do. Yeah. But surprisingly, unfortunately, they're they're they were just desperate. Yeah. Things they, weren't going well for them. Yeah. They were uh, just full on desperate. Yeah. And that's why they let her go. Well, that it's amazing what desperation will will drive you to do. Uh, listening to the gal who's having visions in her father's garden might seem like a good idea at that point. Send in the crazy girl. Yeah. <laughs> Let her go. <laughs> well, uh, Joan uh, did not disappoint. During this meeting, she made a prediction about a military reversal at the Battle of Louvre uh, near Orléans several days before messengers arrived to report it. So she seemed pretty legit. Mm -hmm. um, I think that they were ready to hear her. Uh, Joan came to know of the battle through, quote, grace divine and used this divine revelation to persuade the garrison commander to take her to the to King Charles. King Charles is his name. The seventh, uh, the Dauphin. I like King Charles. King Charles. King Charles the Dauphin. <laughs> it has a nice ring. And Charles isn't even French. I mean, I, come on. Uh, <laughs> Hey, Jennifer, why don't you take us to the Dauphin? Oh, I would love to. On Let's Set That Scene, February 13th, 1429. Ooh, just before Valentine's Day. Oh, it's so romantic. <laughs> Joan and her army of armed escorts set out to bring the French royal court to Chignon. To avoid danger, this is when Joan decided to cut her hair and dress like a man to protect herself so she would blend in with her troops and earn all of their respect because she just happened to 
be protecting herself. And little did they realize that she's just trying to blend in. They're like, oh, hey, one of the guys. Yeah. All right, hey, Joan. Another Game of Thrones Game of Thrones reference. Yeah. Arya Stark. She's just like Arya Stark. Arya Stark, Joan of Arc. Oh, I like that There they are. <laughs> <laughs> she needed to protect herself. And the easiest way to do that was to blend in. Yes. And yes. look masculine. Exactly. That will... That is a little tidbit to put a pin in because that's coming back around later. Absolutely. Remember that. Yeah. So with that, 11 days later, when they arrived at Xinjiang, <laughs> I love your emphasis on your French. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. I have to compensate for how terribly it would sound <laughs> if I didn't put passion into it. Well, Charles, the Dauphin. He wanted to test Joan and disguise himself as a soldier to blend in. So he basically was like, all right, this girl, I don't I don't think that she's going to be able to do this. So the scene I'm setting right now is perfectly uh, embodied in an episode of Drunk History where Jack McBriar, I have a photo of him right here. Him. He plays the Dauphin. <laughs> so it's him with like a fake mustache mm -hmm. hiding amongst his soldiers. Yeah. And Vanessa Hudgens is playing Joan of Arc and she's like, you, I know it's you. You're the Dauphin. He's like, oh, you got me. <laughs> so um, if you want to check that out and watch her story in a really funny way, I would recommend Drunk History episode. I'll tell you later in the citations. <laughs> so when he was able to not fool her, she saw right through it. And with that, she was able to walk right up to him and say that she wanted to help him claim his throne. Since he was so extremely impressed by the fact that he figured her out, she was given the chance to go to war to show God working through her. And then the uncrowned King Charles VII sent Joan to siege Orleans as part of a relief mission. So off to Orleans they went. April 29th, 1429, they rode in and Joan rode up on a white horse. Another Arya Stark reference. Yes. Hello. Also a little bit Lady Godiva in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was wearing clothes, but I mean, white horse reference. Love it. Five days later, she grabbed a sword and ran right at the English forces as they were about to attack her French army. During this battle, she was shot by an arrow and was taken out of battle for emergency surgery, and then she returned. Talk about inspiration. I know. I mean, she didn't just talk the talk. Oh, no. She got stabbed, taken out, and then came back to walk the walk. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't say that I would do the same. I mean, who? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough cookie. It is. She <laughs> is. And... After, oh, excuse me, a, a tough macaron. Oh, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> that was good. Thank you. It was Thank nice. you. A little, a little French touch. <laughs> a little sprinkling. <laughs> well, nine days later of battling, the uh, the English forces finally retreated. It was rumored that days following the battle, Joan wept for all of the dead, which. I absolutely believe. Oh, for sure. Yeah. She realized, though, that she had to get it together because she needed to get the Dauphin to Rams, where he would be crowned the king of France. So he told her, I am not going to Rams unless you clear a path 
So that's what she did. And she took his words pretty much literally that the English were so afraid of her that they were rumored and created all of these rumors that she was possessed by the devil, Mm. which is like the exact opposite of what she was trying to embody. But whatever works to defeat the enemy. I mean, say what you need to to make yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. But um, going back to, again, uh, Joan being blended in with her with her men and her forces, she started get, hearing some rumors about herself and um, it was being spread that uh, about her sexuality and that she could have been possibly transgender or she could have been gay. I mean, it doesn't really matter, though. She was it, it had nothing to do with anything. They were out fighting a battle mm-hmm. and she was blending in for her uh, for her safety. It right. was never a topic of uh, that brought her into this. So it's interesting how that rumor kind of came about. And well, I mean, she's she's the the person who's charging ahead of all these men. Mm-hmm. She's getting shot and returning to the battlefield. She's hyper focused and driven, which is very intimidating to lots of people, particularly men on a battlefield. And they're going to say anything that they can to diminish her power, right? To diminish the sway that she has over people. And at the time, um, calling her these names or, you know, at the time being that, that offensive, mm-hmm. um, they thought that that would at least uh, knock her down a few pegs. Like this is, you know, this person is nobody to be concerned with. Well, Just cut her down. Yeah, and they they tried and tried, but they clearly didn't make any any budging because it, it's so it's such a minor part, and it had nothing to do with it mm-hmm. that she just let it roll off her shoulder. So I just thought. You know, sprinkle it in because it is a little touch of her history, but yeah, it had nothing to do with that. No, so it to was, be able to hear, I mean, I'm, obviously you said that she's heard these rumors. Yeah, to hear that again, I, I try to think about where I was in my mental space at that age. Mm-hmm. If I'd heard something like that that was completely the opposite of who I am or what I stood for, that I'm the devil and I'm, you know, an awful person. It would have had an, a huge emotional impact on me. It would have struck me pretty hard. Uh, my confidence would have been shattered. Yeah. And I just, she was so focused and so confident and just knew in her bones that what she was doing was right. Yeah. And it just, it didn't matter to her what anybody else said. She knew that she had to keep forging ahead. I think that's such an incredible lesson to learn Absolutely. and as young as she was to know that with that kind of confidence it's just it, it's incredibly inspiring to me yeah at 40. well it, it's it's interesting you said something that really uh, struck me it's the fact that she had all of this um skill and this mental capacity to handle the fact that she was going through this and hearing these things about herself i think the fact that she prayed so much really had a, a lot to do with it prayer is meditation on right. so many levels i mean on a spiritual level, it's just about thinking about what your certain focus is and mm-hmm. honing in on them. Intention. And, yes, mm-hmm. intention. And the fact that she she wept for all of the dead, she she uh, really had so much to, to think on and to pray on between having protecting her forces, bringing the Dauphin to Rams, the, the amount of praying she did and that internal meditation really probably brought up her um, her, her mental status mm-hmm. rather than being constantly drained and constantly being uh, poked at. Yeah. And, and she found balance. Yeah, she found that balance, which is, I mean, I 
hard. It's a struggle. Yeah. It's a struggle. You just said it yourself. Yeah. I mean, oh, and again, we could keep talking about this forever, right. but she just has so, <laughs> she has so much content. Joan, yeah. what a rich history. So we, we, we pursue. Once they finally got to Rams on July 16th, 1429, on the next day, because they couldn't do this day of, Charles had to wait a day on July 17th, Charles was crowned and coronated as Charles the Seventh of France, where Joan stood beside him and pledged him as her king. Then August 28th, 1429, Charles attempted to create a peace treaty between England and France, but Joan went a bit rogue. It was... She became this battle-hungry person, and her visions had stopped. So September 8th rolls around, and Joan attacked Paris without without notifying. She just went, and she just attacked Paris. And it was during this time she got shot in the leg, and this caused the English and France to be in fighting all over again. So her, her visions had stopped, mm-hmm. which is for six years or six five years had defined who she was and had given her her purpose. And then it just stops. It's like it abandoned her. And that had to have been incredibly difficult to, to deal with. I absolutely agree. And I think that's why she, she went into battle. I think that's why she went rogue. I think the fact that she, it was almost an acting out. Maybe it could have been that teenage moment that she was lacking Mm -hmm. and she just was like, I'm gonna, like, I'm doing this. Like, this is what we're doing. She had no sound conscious, it sounded like. It seemed yeah. like her, for for a lack of a better word, because I'm a Disney person, her Jiminy Cricket, her her angels, they, they left. And she probably felt abandoned. Yep. Yeah. Yep, just that's like you terrible. said. terrible. Um, so let's move into her capture, because that's not long after this no. whole situation, right? Absolutely so, right. Um, you know, it was in September that Joan attacked Paris. In May, uh, Joan was knocked off her horse over enemy lines, and she was captured at Compiègne by the Burgundian faction, which is that group of French yes. nobles you had alluded to earlier that were allied with the English. Mm-hmm. Now, I am particularly interested in her capture because there's this uh, Frenchman. He's a um, pro-English bishop. His name was Pierre Cochon. Um, he, I, I put in my notes that he is a piece of work. He was just like... He maneuvered to get her to to uh, prosecute her. He wanted to go after her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he claimed jurisdiction over her trial because it was in his diocese. Um, So this this goes to the power of the church in the 1400s. Right. Like he had enough muscle that he could maneuver and get her trial. No separation of church and state. I was just going to say that. I was like, yeah, that's a really funny church and state. Yeah. It's really separate. No, not at all. So hand motions and that's separate, by the way. Yeah, a lot of (laughs) gesticulation. So, uh, yeah, he he maneuvered to get her trial, um, and he did everything he could to discredit her. Um, He sent a mission to her village to dig up dirt, which failed. Um, He tried to discredit her virginity. You know how you this These things were so important to her, that her credibility, her virginity, her dedication to her faith, and he did everything he could as a bishop, which Mm -hmm. is like, I feel like the most hurtful part of it, right? You're a religious person, and she has done everything that she felt she could Mm -hmm. to be a religious person, 
and he was trying to discredit her completely. Well, her virginity was confirmed, and so this prevented the court from charging her with witchcraft. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it was fair. The the hearing of the voices, uh, that that was something back in the day that was uh, connected to witchery. So it was basically hearing voices, you're a witch, then you're burned at the stake. So yeah. it wasn't very far off, but it's nice to know that she was declared innocent of witchcraft. Yes, thank goodness. Although that she was, she didn't completely uh, escape witchcraft unscathed. Her primary weakness, I remember when we talked about Joan uh, and the way that she dressed and, and portrayed herself as oh, masculine. Well, that was her weakness in the end. Uh, it was her decision to wear men's clothes that the court chose to exploit. And that coupled with her visions, um, they allow, that allowed them to impute accusations of sorcery on, on poor Joan. So that's... Uh, it's unreal. Yeah. Fashion. Yeah. Co coming back to bite you. Sorry, Joan. And I think it's kind of unreal that um, that's actually still in the Bible, the verse that they used against her. It was Deuteronomy 22.5, which read, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. And... I mean, that's, that's a little tough to swallow. Yeah, a bit tough to swallow. And um, I, I also heard that it was rumored that they used her, her illiteracy against mm -hmm. her. She was never taught to read or write. Uh, she had scribes come in and help her. And it was also rumored that she signed something mm -hmm. and kind of um, offering herself over as a um, not realizing what she signed kind of thing. Uh -huh. They were like, you have to sign this right now. And she blindly did. Also, which came back to bite her. Yeah. Yeah. Really upsetting. So between 1421 and March 24th of 1431, she was interrogated nearly a dozen times by a tribunal, always keeping her humility and steadfast claim of innocence. Um, instead of being held in a church prison, prison with nuns as guards, she was held in a military prison, which sounds really awful. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this is the one point where I can at least understand what they were doing. She she was a soldier. Yeah. You know, and she clearly was a an aggressive person. And so they didn't they didn't feel like nuns could handle her. And that's fair. And I mean, it is war. It, it is war. Um, the awful, awful thing was that uh, of all of these awful things, um, Joan was threatened with rape and torture. Uh, though there is no record that either actually occurred, but just the threat of, I mean, that mental manipulation just to get her to confess, I think was just it's really so, terrible. it's so terrible. Um, she protected herself by tying her soldiers clothes tightly together with dozens of cords. Um, the, the, the group that was trying to prosecute her, they were frustrated. They could not break her. The tribunal eventually used her military clothes against her charging that she dressed like a man, which goes back to what we were saying, that um, that was the thing that really ended up being the breaking point for yeah. poor, poor Joan. The stake in her coffin. Yeah. On May 29, 1431, the tribunal announced Joan of Arc was guilty of heresy, and on the morning of May 30th, she was taken to a marketplace in Rouen and burned at the stake before an estimated crowd of 10,000 people. She was just 19. My God. That would be awful, awful, awful. Um, awful to witness, 
awful to be there. Yeah. Uh, it just, it would be terrible. But that is not where Joan's story ends. Do you want to pick up with her afterlife? Of course, I'd love to, because after Joan's death, the Hundred Years War, it continued for a surprise another 22 years. When uh, King Charles VII ultimately retained his crown and finally ordered an investigation and he authorized, which, ooh, which was authorized by Pope Calatus III, who examined the trial and debunked the charges against her, pronounced her innocent and declared her a martyr in 1456. She was canonized as a saint on May 16, 1920, and is now the patron saint of France. In the 16th century, so not, not just that, she became a symbol of the Catholic League, and in 1803, she was declared a national symbol of France by the decision of the Napole of Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> To make up for saying his name wrong. <laughs> hey, another main character in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, by the way. Ah, I love it. How it comes first. Full circle. Full circle. And, I mean, Joan, as we just, as you just mentioned, she's, she's remained a popular feature in literature, paintings, sculpture, and in other cultural works since the time of her death. And many famous writers, playwrights, filmmakers, artists, and composers have created and continue to create cultural depictions of her. So her story's going to live on forever. forever. Yeah. And constantly in influencing, const constantly inspiring mm -hmm. the next, I don't know, the next art, the next technology, the next anything. There's so much inspiration that she can cause that you don't even realize gets out there. It, it ripple effects mm -hmm. is the word I was going to say. Uh, so trailblazer. I mean, yeah. she embodies the the word, right? Absolutely. I I think we've touched on this throughout this conversation, but there are so many different ways that I think Joan of Arc blazed trails. She, you know, she was dedicated and focused in her work. She um, didn't let um, the idea of being a woman hold her back from the the task that she felt compelled to achieve, the goals that she was driving for. Mm -hmm. I mean, that alone, to me, I'm like. Sign me up. I, I will follow you wherever you go. It's no wonder she was so inspiring mm -hmm. to all of these men who would have otherwise just, I mean, they did dismiss her in the beginning. Yes. And because of her focus and her dedication and her relentlessness, mm -hmm. I'm wearing my Nevertheless She Persisted t-shirt, she persisted yes. and forced them to listen to her. And she ended up stand, standing out in front of the crowd, leading the charge, literally, mm -hmm. and getting all of these people to follow her. It's purely because of her dedication. She was not looking for anything else but to achieve her goal. And to me, that's incredibly inspiring. Absolutely, it is. I mean, you said it so well. And I also think she's a trailblazer when it comes to uh, religion and, and her uh, devout public devotion. Just being a trailblazer for praying as a, as a whole and understanding that your faith is something that only you can understand mm -hmm. and you have to really have faith in other people. I mean, I think she's a trailblazer just for having understanding the real de definition of faith, mm -hmm. to have faith in someone. Uh, she gave us a person to, who really delivered 
on what they were doing. She said, this is what's going to happen, and it happened, the, the battle, for example. She said she was going to bring Charles to, to Rams, and he was going to be the king, and it happened. I mean, that's a combination of setting those goals and that internal faith that she had to get her through and to push her mentality through, her physicalities through. I mean, we could go on and on. Yeah, she's incredible. We love Joan. Joan forever. <laughs> So let's wrap up, Joan. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining me and talking about this incredible, iconic feminist figure in history. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yes, and thank you, everyone, for spending your time with us. Again, this is A Little Louder Now by The Bridge Initiative. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring great women from financial services talking about a variety of topics. If you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, email us at bridge at fi360.com. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.